Hi, Julie. Hi, Lisa. How's it going? Going well. How about you? Good. We just had such an amazing interview with Judge Craig Mitchell from the Skid Row Running Club, and I'm still on a high from that. What a great conversation. He is a really just admirable uh, person, um, really, it's, uh, really inspirational. And I hope that people listen to this and get motivated and inspired to start similar initiatives in their area. I think it's it's done so much good and it just underscores how running um, is really the great equalizer. We've always seen that and felt that. And when we're all out there running, we're all kind of on equal footing. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's really exciting because, you know, a few weeks ago, we interviewed Angel Salgado, who's one of the success stories. And we just learned uh, Angel sent a, a Instagram DM to us that he achieved at his most recent marathon, a 321. So he's getting that much closer to qualifying for Boston, which of course he mentioned was his goal. So we're super excited for Angel. And then of course, having the opportunity to interview the judge this week and hear how it all began from his perspective. And I think what really struck me was just that he said a lot during the episode how whenever starting anything, just stay consistent. And it wasn't like they had these great beginnings. It was very humble how the Skid Row Running Club started. And, and really, it grew from a very, very small group of people where perhaps he questioned how long is this going to last to this tremendous presence in the LA area and, of course, worldwide, thanks to the documentary. And what the judge kept saying is, just be consistent. And I think that applies to everything in life. Sometimes you have a big goal and you're not sure how you're going to get there, whether it's running related or outside of running, but just taking baby steps and being consistent and being intentional about achieving your goal, even if day to day, it doesn't necessarily look like you're making a lot of progress, sticking with it and knowing at the end that you will make that progress, even if on a daily basis, it doesn't feel like it. And I thought that was a really good lesson in terms of what they've been able to achieve in terms of the Skid Row Running Club, because there was no blueprint for what they accomplished. And it kind of happened a little bit organically, but most of all, it sounds like it happened from just being consistent. Yep. And that consistency extends to his running as well, because Judge Mitchell is a very accomplished and very experienced runner with many, many marathons, including several Boston marathon finishes under his belt and, um, you know, challenges along the way. And, and really his, you know, his secret to that longevity has also been consistency. And despite his uh, busy schedule. Um, you know, he commits to showing up three times a week to run with the Skid Row Running Club and people now expect him to be there. And, uh, you know, just that consistency of showing up and getting in his runs and, and sticking with his running. And he even said, you know, he's not the fastest runner anymore, but he is certainly consistent. He's had such longevity in running. And, and I think it's, you know, due in large part to that consistency. Speaking of consistency, we are now approaching uh, almost that six week mark until the Boston Marathon. And, and we just want to reiterate, we know we've talked about this quite a bit this season in our podcasting, and that is a lot of people are feeling a little bit, quote unquote, behind in their training. There's just been a lot of people who have experienced setbacks, whether it's related to illness, COVID or otherwise, weather or circumstances related to running a fall marathon and maybe not feeling fully recovered before having to start training for a spring marathon or whatever that looks like. Just know that being consistent, even if it isn't the same amount of consistency as in past training cycles, you're still training, you're still doing great. And we understand that there's something magical about being able to say when you get to a start line, well, I did 
four 20 milers, or I did three 20 milers and one 18. And you kind of think about what long runs did I do to get to this spot? And 20 is kind of that magic number that often is written in training cycles because number one, it's an even number. And number two, it, it feels good to be able to put a two in front of your mileage a few times before you get out and run 26.2. But we're here to remind everyone that consistency is really what this is all about. If you are running consistent, consistently, even if the mileage day-to-day -day is a little less than what you've done in past training cycles, that cumulative mileage that you've done in the past does make a difference. Your legs, that doesn't go away. That's still in your body. That's still in your legs. And being consistent, even if you only have time or energy to do, you know, on one weekend long run, 14 rather than your intended 18. So what? You're still getting out there. You're still on your feet for a significant amount of time. And maybe it looks different this season, but it doesn't mean that you won't get to the start line and you won't be able to finish your marathon. We want everyone to get to the start line healthy. And the last thing we want is during the six weeks to push and squeeze in a lot of long runs and a lot of training that maybe don't quite have the base for just to be able to check it off because you know what will happen. You'll get to the start line really fatigued or even worse injured. So keep in mind, that if you are consistent and you are getting out there and running, that is enough. You may not have that PR, but that's okay because you're still setting yourself up for success. And then beyond the marathon, you're setting yourself up for a great spring season. Yep. And it's not just about getting to the start line. You can have a really strong race. I know some of my best races have been after training seasons where I didn't think they were a quote unquote ideal mileage. Um, so it, it doesn't uh, rule out having a really great race. There is no magic formula. Like you said, 20 is a nice round number that people like to think about in Europe. Um, when you're going by kilometers, it's by kilometers. It's not by miles. So it may be different, you know, it could be 30 kilometers, um, 35 kilometers. At, people just like round numbers. What we like to look at, and especially with some of our runners who which we encourage to do your long runs slower is that time on your feet. Once you get beyond three hours, three hours, 15 minutes, um, really the, the risk or the breakdown of your body is greater than the reward of, of building endurance. So, um, you know, if you're somebody who can hit about 18 miles in three hours, that's, that's plenty. That's, you know, you don't have to I did that my last long run. I really went by time. I just, you know, figured I knew how much time I wanted to get on my feet and I wasn't as concerned about the mileage. So if you can get in that time, and like you said, the consistency, and it may be not, it may not, may not be what you've done in the past or what you think of as an ideal um, training cycle in terms of what your mileage looks like. But if you've been consistent and you get to that start line healthy, no reason you can't have a strong race. So that's, I think the the bottom line that we want to make sure people understand is that there's no nothing to be gained by trying to um, crunch things into crunch a lot of mileage or stuff a lot of mileage into the last six weeks as we head toward race day. And as we head towards as we hit March, I don't know about you, we discussed this a little bit before, but as we uh, hit March, you know. Boston feels closer. And also this week, we've been having um, discussions with our, our friend who's a fellow podcaster in um, the Boston area um, prior to COVID. Um, so for 2020 Boston, before we found out it was canceled, uh, we were supposed to be doing a panel discussion in Boston that Thursday before the Boston Marathon. And we had everything was uh, set into motion and the details were all set. And then COVID shut things down and we didn't get to do it. Um, but we've been speaking with Cherie again. and. Um, putting plans together for a really special um, opportunity and event in 
um, on Saturday of the Boston Marathon weekend. So stay tuned. We're in the process of setting those details just this week. And, and just those discussions with Sheree and amongst ourselves has gotten me really excited for Boston. I don't know about you. Oh, for sure. And to that end, just thinking about all the things, the checklist, um, in addition to preparing our plans for Boston, this is the time we touched on this a little bit last week. If you have any questions about your nutrition, there is plenty of time to tweak your nutrition between now and race day. So this is the time when you're going out for long runs. If you're thinking about trying a different fueling source, do it on a long run. And also it's worth repeating, do it on a longer speed workout where you're running fast while taking in those calories to make sure it works with your digestive system. And speaking of nutrition, we are super excited that Kelsey Beckman, who was the dietitian on our podcast a few weeks ago, she has agreed to do, um, uh, speak to our runners on a zoom. We're going to be doing that on Sunday, March 13th. So those who are any of our group or individual coaching clients will have the opportunity to um, hear Kelsey speak personally to them. And also we will open it up for questions. We will ask for questions in advance and hopefully she can address any of our runners' nutrition concerns in a more personal setting. And we're really grateful for Kelsey's time. We thought she was a terrific addition to our um, experts on our podcast. And we're very excited that she's going to speak to our runners personally on March 13th and answer any questions and address any concerns as we prepare for uh, spring marathons. Yeah. Kelsey is great. And like you said, going to be a great resource for, for all of our runners, but particularly those that are trying to dial in their nutrition as we get closer to Boston and other spring marathons. And speaking of March and exciting things going on in, going on in March, we have our next group run uh, from Lululemon Gaithersburg on Saturday, March 26 at 9 a.m. So mark your calendars. That will also serve as our kickoff to our Montgomery County Public Schools uh, program, which I think we're now in the seventh year of doing that wonderful program where we um, provide a beginner 5k to 10k coaching to faculty and staff for our local public school system. We've done that through their wellness, uh, their wellness department for many, many years now. And it's actually really one of the programs that we enjoy uh a great deal because uh, we get a lot of faculty and staff who come in who don't nor ordinarily make time for themselves, um, but they carve out some time to get some running in, and we get uh, a lot of great feedback of you know their accomplishments over the over the semester. And we just got an email from a past participant the other day who had really enjoyed two previous programs, and she just had her fourth child and was looking to you know get back into it and the timing works out great because she's going to be able to start um, with the spring program that we're doing and that kickoff um, again the the run is for all runners but we will include our MCPS runners who are kicking off their their training season um, so we're excited about that as well yeah so lots going on all of a sudden it's, it's pretty exciting right I mean it's been two years since we really had a lot going on. And actually, I know in your memories on Facebook, you probably have this pop up too. But two years ago, right about this time, we were at Lululemon um, having our big unveiling of our of our um, ambassador photos. And that was the last big party uh, gathering that, that we had before the shutdown. So those pictures are just coming up in my memories. And um, it felt kind of good to know that we're starting to get back to those type of, of get togethers. For sure. And celebrations. So yeah, so now we're going to take it over to Judge Craig Mitchell. Uh, what a pleasure it was to speak with him, and we can't thank Judge Mitchell enough for joining us today before he headed to court. So uh, what, a, what a fantastic man, and we really hope that you all enjoyed this interview as much as we did. Lisa, I hope you have a great week. Yep, and if you haven't, if you haven't watched the, uh, you know, the, the documentary yet, 
go watch it. It is on uh, Amazon, I think, on Amazon Prime, on Netflix, um, easy to find and such a great documentary. So if you haven't watched it, make sure you go do that. I think you uh, can really appreciate the discussion with Judge Mitchell, especially um, after watching that, that documentary. For sure, and you just reminded me, I, I can't believe we forgot to mention this before, and that is anyone listening, take a minute. We'll put the link in our show notes. Make a donation to the Skid Row Running Club. They're doing great things. It funds these runners for shoes and trips. They can uh, go ahead and run their marathons, have their race entries paid for, and for those international trips, allow them the opportunity to see the world. And uh, what a great what a great opportunity for them and for the mentors as well. So uh, head over to our show notes or directly to the Skid Row Running Club site to make a donation to support this outstanding effort to change the lives of these runners. Yep. As Judge Mitchell mentions in the in our interview, it costs about $3,000 to send a, a runner to an international marathon. So that's not insignificant. And at the beginning of this whole, um, you know, uh, of, of Skid Row Running Club, uh, he was one of the one of the people funding that. So um, now, luckily, there's, uh, you know, more widespread knowledge of the of the club and people who are willing to donate um, and make this possible. They've got, uh, you know, they now take up to 50 or more runners to these international marathons. Yeah. So Lisa, I hope you have a great week. I hope you have a great week, Julie. All right. Bye. Bye. Judge Craig Mitchell, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. We are so excited to have you join us today and so honored. So um, first, we'd love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners to share a little bit about yourself, where you live, and your professional background. Okay, well, um, I'm a judge in the Superior Court here in Los Angeles. I sit in the largest criminal court building uh, in the state of California. Uh, I'm currently presiding over a murder trial. Most of the trials that I deal with uh, carry life sentences. So this is not traffic court or, you know, uh, auto theft. So very serious cases. And um, my background that has brought me to this point, uh, I started out after college uh, teaching high school. And I thought I would leave that uh, rather quickly but I loved it so much that it took me 17 years to break away from it. Um, I went back to law school at night. I had a family at that point, so the paycheck needed to keep coming. But uh, after law school, I joined the district attorney's office and 18 years ago, the governor appointed me to the bench. So in a nutshell, that's where I am today. Tell us about your running history, how you started running, um, kind of the progression of your running, what, you know, some of your proudest accomplishments. Tell, talk to us about your running. Uh, started running about 25 years ago. When I was a brand new deputy district attorney, my boss asked me if I would participate in the Baker to Vegas law enforcement relay. Uh, being one of 20 members of the district attorney's team. And I had never run before that. And I didn't think I particularly liked running, <laughs> but I figured it wouldn't have helped my career to tell him no. So I said, sure, I'll give it a shot. And, you know, amazingly enough, I sort of took to it and met some really nice people who I continued to run with after that law enforcement run. 
And, you know, I've really never looked back. I've probably run at this point in my life, I don't know, 50 to 60 marathons. I run three or four marathons a year, Um, shorter races uh, as well. And, you know, it is obviously at this point an integral part of my life. So Judge Mitchell, clearly you started running later in life, but at this point you've been running consistently for quite a long time. What's your secret to your longevity and your running? Well, I mean, certainly there's a certain determination. I, I do not really um, let minor injuries slow me down. Um, you know, I, I'm like so many runners that if I don't run, something just doesn't feel right. So I get back out there. Um, I also, you know, now with the Skid Row Running Club, there's a whole lot of people who expect to see me three times a week. And so that's another great incentive just to to keep it going. And, you know, I'm not breaking any speed records. You know, I'm a four-hour marathoner at this point in my life. Uh, When I was younger, it was about 3.30. But... um, you know, so so I, I'm a consistent runner, but I really don't beat my body up a lot. That's important. And what what is your um in, in addition to the running, you know, with the Skid Row uh, club running club, what does your training look like now? What what kind of mileage do you do? What what events or what what distance runs are you training for? What does it look like well, now? We've, we've got LA Marathon coming up in just a little over two weeks. Okay, so. Uh, you know, last weekend, you know, I knocked out a 20. I'll, I'll do a 16 miler, uh, you know, in a couple of days on Saturday. I run probably consistently 50 to 60 miles a week, you know, which I think That's is still a lot of mileage. Respectable. What do you do about injuries in terms of, um, you know, sometimes you have, are you someone who, do you have an, injur- an injury plan? What do you do in terms of recoveries so that you can stay consistent? You talk to my friends, uh, my major injury plan is simply to ignore them. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, but having said that, <laughs> you know, a year ago I had a brain tumor removed. Okay. And so the recovery from that was quite challenging. They had to cut both of my balanced nerves. So I sort of had to learn how not to fall over when I ran. Um, but, you know, like I said, determination is a key component of, of me bouncing back. And and how do you fit in the running? I mean, obviously you're doing it very early. You mentioned before you're going to go out for a lunchtime run today too, but you've got a busy job. You've got a family. You've got now a club that's relying on you. How, how do you fit it in? Do you sleep? <laughs> I do sleep. Um, you know, the running program is front and center in my life. It's a priority. Okay. Um, you know, luckily my children are all out of the house, grown with families. So the parenting responsibilities have backed off. So I have a little extra time that I once spent, you know, taking kids to soccer games and cello practice and everything else that's entailed in raising children. Um, but it, it is busy, but I also find that, you know, if I start a day with a run, uh, I'm fairly energized for the duration. And, you know, and it doesn't help, or pardon me, it doesn't hurt uh, to be a relatively high energy person to begin with. 
think we can both relate to a lot of that, especially the starting your day with a run makes us a little bit more productive. Um, so that's a great, I, I think that's a, a commonality among a lot of um, very dedicated dedicated runners. So let's let's switch gears a little bit and talk about um, the evolution of skid row running and how, how, how did it all start? Take us back to kind of the beginning and tell us how, how it started. Started over 10 years ago. Um, an individual who I had sentenced to state prison uh, came back to my courtroom and said, you know, Judge Mitchell, do you remember me? And I looked at Roderick and I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, I've just been paroled to the Midnight Mission. Um, they are helping me to try and uh, address my addiction issues. And I want you to come down and meet the people who are a part of my life right now. And so I said, Roderick, I'd be happy to come down with you. When I went down to Skid Row to the Midnight Mission, the president of the mission asked if there was something I could do to contribute to their program. And in a past issue of Runner's World, I recalled a woman on the East Coast starting a running club for ex-felons. And so I thought to myself, well, ex-felons, people in recovery, close enough. Maybe I could start a running club at the Midnight Mission. And that's what happened. So when you proposed the idea, what was the response, um, particularly because those who don't run sometimes are averse to running. Were they overwhelmed by your suggestion or were there enough people to support you right away? Well, it was a very humble start. You know, when I went down there initially, I was running with three or four other people. But by word of mouth, um, they would invite other people in recovery to join them and slow but sure, it grew. And very early on in the program, as a huge incentive to keep those who were running, running and to attract new members, I incorporated the idea that we would every year participate in an international marathon. And so if you stuck with the program, if you ran three days a week, you would have an all expenses, all expenses paid trip to some place around the world to run. And our first destination was Ghana. We run the Accra Marathon. And so when people began to realize, you know, if I commit to this program, I'm going to go to places I never imagined would be possible for me. You know, to fast forward to a month ago, uh, 50 runners from Skid Row went to Egypt to run the Egyptian Marathon in Luxor. What made you come up with the idea of making the goal an international marathon versus what most running clubs do, which is a 5K? Okay, I have three children. My oldest son is responsible for most of my gray hairs. Um, <laughs> okay, um, God bless him and he's, he's a wonderful child. But when he was, you know, in those challenging high school years, you know, and I, I would sense that we were sort of, there was a wall between us. I would say, okay, Jordan, let's go on a trip. And I would take him overseas to India, to Egypt, to Europe, uh, to South Asia. And I found that just that 
time alone with him together in a completely different environment always brought us much closer together. That wall would dissipate very quickly. And so I said, well, if it would, if it fostered that type of relationship between myself and my son, I think international travel would do the same amongst the runners. And it definitely has. That's amazing. How how do you afford to take all of these runners now? You have 50 runners. How how do how do you afford how did you afford it at the beginning? And how do you continue to fund these trips? Well, initially, um, there were about four of us who dug deep into our own pockets and paid the expenses. It is just about and has remained consistent. It takes about three thousand dollars per person. Uh, to participate in these overseas marathons. So initially, uh, there was a lot of expenditures from very limited people. But a few years back, uh, the movie Skid Row Marathon came out. And it has been a watershed event in terms of connecting donors who believe in our program and are now making su such trips as uh, taking 50 people to Egypt possible. Wonderful. So. What types of logistical issues did you run into initially when you proposed taking um, convicted felons overseas? And how did you, how were you able to um, overcome those? The major logistical problem um, concerned those who were on parole. If you're on probation, as long as you get the court's approval, they can travel overseas. If you're on parole, you can't leave the state. And so one of our first trips, as I indicated, was to Ghana. Uh, one of our runners who had spent 27 years in prison was on parole for a life offense. Uh, we couldn't get him to Ghana. Parole would not let him go. So what I have learned to do is to anticipate if one of our runners is on parole and we're looking at an overseas marathon, if they're doing well on parole, there is the possibility to terminate early. And so I meet with their parole officers, uh, contact the folks up at the state capitol, and effectuate, hopefully, their early termination from parole. And that's happened, and it's worked. Yeah, that's, um, you know, that's clearly a, a unique consideration that, you know, a lot of us don't think about when we're thinking about doing doing international um, marathons. I want to back up a little other, bit and talk about. The um, other thing I will interject is uh, a fair number of our runners uh, are undocumented. And a fair number of our runners carry green cards. And so that presents a, a whole another layer of challenges in terms of getting them overseas. People who are undocumented cannot leave the country. And so they only participate in the marathons we participate in the United States. Um, the green card holders are able to leave the country and get back in with a little bit of hassle. I just, I wanna interject something. It sounds to me, it's the incentives are not just about at this point, the opportunity to go to overseas. It's also knowing that you are going to be advocating. Um, you're changing lives, not just by offering the, the prize at the finish of the training, but also through the process by 
advocating and making participants who maybe never had someone advocating for them in this way before feel special. So I would imagine even in the situations where perhaps the um, parolee was not let off parole early, just having you in their corner gives uh, these individuals self-esteem and a feeling of worth that perhaps they didn't have before thanks to your advocacy. Well, I mean, that's so much about what, uh, what this program is about. I mean, you know, obviously, if you spend time in prison, you've had some very negative interactions in the criminal justice system. And for those individuals to have a judge to go to bat for them, it, it means a tremendous amount. It, it changes their whole perception of what a judge can be about. Um, but no, you know, and there's the advocacy to try and get them overseas, but it's, it's so much more than that. It's, you know, do you need a job? Okay, I've got a friend who has this type of a company. Let me put you two in contact with one another. Um, you're in a, you know, a difficult relationship. Perhaps you've been kicked out of your living situation. We can find you a home. You're in a recovery program. This recovery program isn't working for you. Let me connect you with a person in a different recovery program. Let me introduce you to this person who I think would be a great sponsor for you in your 12-step program. I mean, there's so many facets to what it means to sort of direct this whole program. Right. It sounds like they have a really comprehensive support structure within this community of runners, which we as runners know that when you run with a group, it's really close-knit and you've got people who will really go to bat for you. But I think that's probably even more, uh, you know, really underscores, like you said, these are people who have had challenges in the past and maybe haven't had that support structure and, and so, in the past. So what's so great about the program at this point in, it, in its evolution is, uh, you know, like this morning, we had 50 runners out there on Skid Row. I would say 20 of those 50 are mentors. I can't do it all, okay? Nor do I want to do it all. Um, but it means that if someone has my ear, there are plenty of other people that they can run next to and say, listen, this event is going on in my life. I need some guidance. And so given the number of mentors that we have, um, we are just able to service so many more people. And how do mentors get involved? How does how does somebody become a mentor? And how do you get I mean, people just volunteer to show up? Is there are there requirements? What what how do how do runners who are listening or interested in getting involved become mentors? As one of our oldest runners um, in terms of longevity in the program, I'll quote him: "Just show up." Okay. No, we don't have requirements. We have people from the business community. We have mental health professionals. We have people who are lawyers, um, all different walks of life. And where do they show up? <laughs> where, where do show you meet? What, the, what are the times? They show up in the heart of Skid Row at the corner of Six and San Pedro. And, you know, it's sort of a shock to the senses. Uh, you know, the first couple of times, you know, people are on the street. There's trash all over the place. There's rats coming, you know, back and forth. Um, it, it, it's a pretty 
gritty place. Um, there's a fair amount of crime down there. So, you know, but uh, they brave all those conditions. And, you know, once we start running, uh, it all becomes worthwhile. I, Lisa and I talk about this a lot on our with each other on our podcast. There's something about running. Um, it's the forward movement. It's it causes people who ordinarily wouldn't share things with each other. It's sort of you're not facing each other. You're running by side by side. It creates this sort of intimate um, environment to have conversation. So in over the years, I'm sure as you uh, mentioned earlier, there are probably a lot of conversations that wouldn't have otherwise happened because they're on a run. Even though mentors don't have training formally, are there things that are provided or resources that are provided to mentors so that in the event they're running with someone that is confiding in them, they sort of know how to respond? Yes, and, and, and the longer you're with the program, I mean, we have people who are recovered addicts who work in programs uh, that are assisting those in recovery. So if I don't have a particular answer for an issue that has come up in someone's life or a crisis that is presented, you know, you know who to pass that person off to. You need to talk to so-and-so, okay? Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, if you're going to do a 15 to 20 mile run, you got a lot of space to fill. <laughs> and, you know, we encourage our runners, get rid of the earbuds, turn the music off and listen to one another. And, you know, and no, you cover everything. The playing field is leveled too. Everybody's just a runner out there. Which Absolutely. I think is so nice I mean, that, that idea just was expressed again this morning. Uh, you know, I'm not a judge. They're not in recovery. They're not the former incarcerated. You know, we're just all trying to cover the distance. We're all just thinking about, you know, how are we going to do in the LA Marathon? We have a ultra where we run the length of the LA River, which is 54 miles. That's coming up. We have a bike ride from the Grand Canyon to Los Angeles coming up in May. We have all these events and you know, we, we talk about them. And of course, when you go to some place like Egypt, the beautiful thing is you just keep revisiting that. Do you remember when we were at the pyramids? Do you remember when we were snorkeling in the Red Sea? You know, you, you have those special moments to share, you know, you just don't leave them at, at, at that destination marathon. Of these 50 runners, how many of them have been there for many years and have kind of gone through many of those experiences together? Oh, boy. Um, many of our runners have been with us almost from the very beginning. Okay. They have. You know, if you are in recovery, recovery is a lifelong process. And so it isn't something like, oh, well, I no longer have to concern myself with my former drug or alcohol addiction. No, you're, you're five years clean, you're seven years clean, you're 10 years clean. And since running is such a vital part of maintaining the sobriety, um, there's a lot of wisdom in sticking with it. Yeah, that's great. Um, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about how, how the movie came came to be how, how did you know because obviously the movie was just a few years ago and you've been doing this for 
quite some time now. How did how how did that um, idea come to be, and how did how did how did you start the process of this documentary? Almost ten years ago, the L.A. Times article, or the L.A. Times did an article when we ran our first L.A. marathon, front page of the L.A. Times, and a couple of film producers, Mark and Gabby Hayes, got the paper and read about it. And it picked their curiosity and they reached out to me and asked if they could perhaps film our runners. And I indicated, well, you know, you first need to gain their trust. And Mark and Gabby then ran with us and particularly Gabby, I mean, it, it takes you about 20 minutes to realize that she is just a, one of the most caring human beings you're ever gonna meet. And so on somewhat of an accelerated schedule, the guys were open to them being filmed. And I think it's important to note, people who have suffered from addiction, many have very low self-esteem. They've made choices in their life they don't feel good about. And for filmmakers to say, listen, your life is sufficiently meaningful and worthwhile. Your accomplishments to rebuild your life, you know, need to be acknowledged by a larger community. That's incredibly therapeutic for an addict. Um, and uh, that certainly has been proven out by the willingness for our runners to say, okay, if you want to turn the camera on, I'm going to tell you about my journey. Did it, did it, um, was it obvious the cameras were there? Or did people feel like they were kind of under a microscope or did it just sort of, you know, people got used to the cameras and life went on and conversations went on as normal? Mark and Gabby filmed us for almost four years. Oh, wow. And there was over 300 hours of footage that they boiled down to an hour and 23 minutes. Okay. Um, we just, we just at a certain point ignored them. Okay. I, I, I got a real insight into how celebrities or politicians deal with that type of a camera being in your face all the time. You, you just ignore it. Um, I had no idea what type of film they were producing. I did not anticipate my role to be as significant in the movie as it ultimately played out to be. And what was fun is, is they kept it under wraps. And there was a big screening in Beverly Hills uh, for the first showing of the movie. And I was somewhat taken aback by what they came up with. And what happened after the movie came out? You alluded a little bit to it before, um, you know, obviously a watershed moment, but what, what happened after, after the movie came out? Well, uh, the movie was featured in close to 30 film festivals all over the world. Uh, lucky enough to attend a lot of those film festivals. Um, for instance, in Berlin, in London, they screened just at the time of their respective marathons. And the London Marathon uh, Committee invited me to run. I 
was lucky enough to be backstage and meet uh, Ilya Kipchoge and have a conversation with him, which was an absolute thrill. Um, ran in Berlin, so ran all over the United States at film festivals. Um, just had a great time uh, when the movie was uh, screening. And it's available on Amazon Prime and Netflix right now. Well, we certainly loved it. And, and that's what inspired us to interview Angel. And we wanted to ask you, how are those who were featured in the film, how are they doing? And are you still in touch with those runners? Uh, I'm in touch with all of them. Okay, Ben Shirley is producing classical music uh, in Ohio, where he moved with his wife. Um, he and I are in contact all the time. Um, Rafael Cabrera, he and I spoke yesterday. <laughs> um, he's doing very well, works for the Department of Water and Power, is caring for his mother. Uh, David Askew and I exchanged emails earlier in the week. Uh, Rebecca remains a surgical tech nurse up in Seattle. Um, and Modi now lives in Senegal with his wife and son. So yes, the relationships remain intact. It's so wonderful that the happy ending we all hope for actually worked out for those who were portrayed in the film because it, it doesn't always work out that way. Doesn't always and, out. And, and to speak to that, um, on Monday's run down on Skid Row, I was walking in front of the mission and there was a um, man laying on the dirty sidewalk. His hair was all matted. He was dirty and I recognized him. He was one of our former runners and he woke up and he recognized me and he jumped to his feet and we embraced and, you know, but obviously not everyone succeeds. Drug addiction, particularly heroin, methamphetamine, it is so hard to break from those substances. I mean, that, that's, you know, that's an education as a judge that is invaluable for me to have, just to witness firsthand, up close, how powerful, how destructive those drugs are. And since the film was made, of course, our entire world has changed. There's been a pandemic and there has been a reckoning with institutional racism. And can you talk about how specifically both affected the Skid Row Running Club and, and how things have changed uh, since 2020 for your club? Initially, at the very height of the pandemic, we certainly followed the CDC guidelines and we suspended our group runs. Um, running was so important though that groups of two and three people would make arrangements, okay, to run. And so the club continued in that fashion. To be quite honest, that lasted for probably no more than two to three months. We came back together. We were outside. We masked up. We tried to maintain our social distance um, because that type of isolation for someone who is not in recovery is difficult. For someone who is in recovery, it's exceptionally difficult. I mean, that's why people go to 
multiple AA and NA meetings a week because you just need that validation by other people, that presence of other people saying, I'm involved in the same struggle that you are. We're keeping one another accountable by staying clean. And so that's the same thing that the running club is. It is a occasion three times a week when you are going to, on one level, answer to your peers. And you want to show them, yes, for another three days, you've maintained your sobriety. And so, I mean, that, I mean, the pandemic has been a challenge. Uh, we couldn't travel overseas one year, so we decided, okay, we'll take a bike ride from San Francisco to Los Angeles. And that's how bike riding became a part of our program. With respect to the institutionalized racism, our club, <laughs> you couldn't get more rainbow than our club. And I don't want to sound Pollyannish, but you know, if you have the mindset of the people in our club, um, George Floyd would still be alive, okay? Trayvon Martin would still be alive um, because th those attitudes, people with those attitudes are not a part of our program. And that's one of the, I think, <laughs> aspects that really make being a member of our program so inviting, okay? I think it goes back again to everyone being on equal equal footing when we're all out there, just trying to you know put one foot in front of the other and um, going through the same struggles regardless of our backgrounds or our education or our um, demographic profile. Um, we're all out there together, and I think that we see that a lot, um, you know, in running and in races across the board, and, which is you know, why we, this is. We do, and you know, I, I'm sure. You've made the observation, you know, by and large, runners seem to be a really nice group of people. Okay. Yep. And um, people with negative attitudes towards others. I mean, you know, several are, of our members uh, are members of the LGBTQ community. And so, you know, on Pride Week, we all wrote, wore rainbow outfits. Okay. <laughs> Our first trip was to Ghana because I wanted our African-American runners to go back to where many of their ancestors were put on the slave ships to connect with the mother country, so to speak. Okay, and, and, and there's just, there's a, a consciousness and awareness, uh, a level of, of a, a knowledge base that, you know, mitigates against the nonsense and the narrow-mindedness uh, that, you know, we're struggling with as a nation at this point. Right. It makes us want everybody to be able to, to do this and everyone to be able to, to experience that. Are, is there any talk or discussion or have you heard of any um, proposals to start similar clubs in other parts of the country? I mean, you talked about, you know, you had read, uh, you know, uh, you had heard what inspired you was reading about the woman on the East Coast who had something similar, but are there, are there other organizations that are striving to do this type of work? There are, and some of them are directly linked to having watched the movie and saying, hey, we could do that in our community. There's a running club in Charleston. There's a running club in Texas that is now started. 
there is a running club in Bismarck, North Dakota. Um, so no, um, the, the, the concept is being adopted elsewhere. What advice do you have for someone listening who's inspired by the Skid Row Running Club and how to get it started? Because in, in theory, it's, it's such a great idea, but sometimes in practice, you can get a lot of, of resistance. So what advice do you have? Just remain consistent, um, you know, and, and don't be discouraged if the start is, is slow, you know. Um, but if you are genuinely concerned about the well-being of other people, you know, that, that's, I hate to say it, it's a rare enough commodity out there, particularly if you are dealing with people who have experienced homelessness, people who are in recovery, you know, they're sort of the outcasts. And if you can show them that by your presence, day in, day out, week after week, 52 weeks a year, you're going to be there when you say you're going to be there. It's going to eventually work. People want to be around people who are nurturing and supportive. And if you bring that on a very genuine level to the table, uh, I think eventually success is inevitable. Uh, in, in 10 years, running three times a week, I can count probably now since we've been in business for 10 years on less than 10 fingers, the number of runs that I've missed. They know Craig Mitchell is gonna be there. Which is quite amazing because you mentioned earlier that you even had brain tumor surgeries. So the fact that you can still count um, the few numbers of runs that you've missed, that's amazing. The great thing after I had my surgery, I, I was in horrible shape. Um, members of the running club, because I wanted to come to work after I convalesced at home for a month, I couldn't drive. And so they arranged a schedule where members of the running club who had cars, they would come pick me up every morning and take me to work. Just a beautiful reciprocal caring arrangement. That is beautiful and shows how much people want to do for you because you've done so much for others. Yeah. I wanted to circle back for a minute and just ask, has there been an improvement in relations with law enforcement um, since starting the Skid Row Running Club? Because we know there are a lot of mentors. We would imagine some of those mentors are in law enforcement. And has there been conversations within the club on how to improve relations? And if so, could you share some of those? This morning, we had six female police officers run with us. Uh, they were not new to the club. Okay, they have run with us for years. And just as their presence forces people who have had negative experiences with law enforcement to reevaluate those attitudes, the converse is true. The officers who run with us they don't look at the homeless or the addicted population the same way. And many of the police officers who run with us, you know, will go out of their way. If one of our people in recovery needs a sponsorship to run Boston or run a distant marathon, the police officers will step up and make that possible. Okay, and that just totally changes how people look at cops. 
okay? Um, you know, but when we were in Egypt, we had several police officers uh, who joined us in the program. And, you know, you get up every morning, you take breakfast, lunch, and dinner with the same people around the table. You know, the us and them characterizations just don't apply anymore. I have a little bit of a different question, but one that I was going to ask before. Um, do you do anything to help prepare the runners for the marathons other than training? Do you bring in speakers? Do you help them, you know, figure out nutrition, strength training, injury prevention? You know, if somebody gets injured, what what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of support do they get as, as you guys are getting ready for, for um, you know, the LA marathon? I'm thinking about how do, how do you get people prepared to run a marathon? Because it's, um, you know, there's a lot to do outside of the running. I somewhat defer to some of our runners who are more accomplished runners than I am, okay? I'm somewhat of a minimalist. I'm not a great stretcher. Uh, I have an aversion for water. Um, I do not consume anything during the course of a marathon. So, you know, you don't wanna follow my playbook. It's worked but for you, so. <laughs> it does. Um, but we have other people who are much more into nutrition, into, you know, what is the necessary hydration, and they bring that to the table. And I let them do the, the training. I'm there for every run, but I know when to keep my mouth shut. Well, if you ever need any coaches to talk on a Zoom call and help get people prepared for a marathon, we will happily, happily do that or contribute in any way we can from the East Coast to help help support your runners. How many do you know how many are running the LA Marathon? Uh, we have about 40 who will be running in two weeks. Okay. Wow, that's that's fantastic. Yeah. And and, yeah. And uh ASICs will be putting brand new shoes on everybody's feet. And uh they're providing us with free bibs. So no, it's, it's, it's a great deal. Go ASICs, that's, that's fantastic. And because we are a podcast that focuses on the Boston Marathon, uh, do you have any runners who are headed to Boston this April? Uh, we have three that are headed to Boston who have qualified, okay? Um, you know, Angel is a great runner. He just did uh, the Ventura Marathon at 321. We're okay. so excited for him. That's a huge PR. It is a great PR. Our fastest runner uh, does a sub three. Okay, I am envious beyond words, but you know, <laughs> um, he will be in Boston. We've got Armando going to Boston. We've got Pedro going to Boston. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, um, we would be so happy to uh, get in touch with them to help prepare them if they haven't run the race before, because uh, that's what we do. So if, if they want to reach out to us, we would be happy to share our tips for that particular race, as it is a unique course. I will definitely relay that to them. Okay. And I've had the great good fortune of running Boston twice. So, you know, great, great run. What years did you run it? Oh boy, um, probably 10 to 12 years ago. Okay, yeah. So what'd you think and any tips you have for our listeners as someone who's uh, run it twice? Yeah, I mean, you hear all this nonsense about Heartbreak Hill. There are 
more difficult hills in Los Angeles than Heartbreak Hill in Boston. Okay, so don't let it intimidate you. I mean, the energy is incredible. Um, you know, you just hope that you're not going to freeze to death or get blown over if the weather is inclement. <laughs> um, my sister ran Boston in one of the most god-awful conditions, you know, a few years back. I'm sure you remember that race. Um, but no, I mean, it's just, it's just a great run. I was, I was still running sub threes, or not sub threes, but sub fours when I ran Boston. So that was good. I remember um, Lisa and I just ran Boston in October and I had uh, just heard about the documentary and hadn't yet watched it, but I recognized on the corner um, right by sort of all of the outdoor activities that were happening on Boylston Street, there was a small group of runners wearing Skid Row running jerseys. So you definitely, we know you had a contingency there. Um, yeah, we saw them warming up or, or doing a shakeout run the day before we noticed them in their jerseys. So this year in particular, we will look for them again, but um, we'll be interviewing we try to interview the race director of Boston um, each season, Dave McGilvery, and we're guessing he's familiar with the Skid Row Running Club, but we hopefully um, they've been in touch with him because we know he would absolutely support the club in any way he could, um, given the person he is and what he does for a living. Well, if you could, uh, you know, get an invitation for us to run as a charity, we would be out there in an instant. Oh, my gosh. We're on it. <laughs> <laughs> you know we have the funds to get our folks there so for not this year but next year that you know that would be a dream come true okay so dave dave if you're listening in the baa judge mitchell has a request <laughs> <laughs> i do indeed okay <laughs> you would have guys just bouncing off of the walls you know it, in excitement to have that type of opportunity well, we will do our best to put in put in a good word because that is right. we think um, you know all the charities are are very worthy charities, but this one in particular, I think, um, as Julie mentioned, Dave McGilvery um, often says that he's in the business of of building self confidence is what he's doing. He's not putting on races, but he's building self confidence, and that's exactly what we see what we see you doing. So we know you're busy and you've got to go get to court now and um, get on with your day and get your lunchtime run in. But we wanted to thank you so much for spending your time with us. We were both so moved um, by the documentary and by the stories that it presented. And speaking to Angel was really uh, moving for us and for our listeners. And the next natural um, progression was. We've got to talk to the judge and hear, um, you know, his how this started and, and hear about your experiences. So we were so honored to have you on the podcast. Well, this really appreciate so quickly. I just looked at my watch for the first time, and I can't believe <laughs> we're at the end of our time. So it's been. We could talk all day, and we have plans to come to California, and we want to run with you, and we will we will make it out there for sure at some point, and that will be our number one priority is to come run uh, with the Skid Row Running Club. We are, we have already talked about it, and and have plans to do that. So we cannot wait to meet you in person and come out and do that. And then we can talk more. We can, you know, talk well, on a 10 or 12. Or... Warmly embraced by everyone. We thank can't you. wait. We're really <laughs> looking forward to that. Okay. All right. Well, thank, so thank you, you so, so much, much, Judge. Thank you for having me. And I wish you the very best. Thank you. Thanks, you too. Have Good luck day. at the marathon. Okay. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.